Do you want to stop yelling and have your child listen to? Well, I have exciting news for you. If you're hearing this right now, it means that the doors to mindful parenting are open at mindfulparentingcourse.com. This only happens for a limited time, and it may be perfect for you if you want to be that patient, calm parent, but you're afraid of being walked all over, you're losing it, and you want to be that steady, peaceful parent, you don't have a cohesive method, and you take in bad advice like just count to one, two, three. Mindful parenting is an evidence-based system that not only teaches you how to calm your reactivity, but offers you a ton of personal guidance. A lot of other parenting coaches talk about the best way to respond to your child, but guess what? They don't walk you through the research-proven practices that it really takes to create changes that actually last. Mindful parenting teaches you the specific steps to create cooperative, loving relationships for life. In Mindful Parenting, you can learn how to stay calm, even if you find yourself shouting hourly now. Be present for your child no matter what they're going through. Resolve conflicts easily without yelling or taking away the iPad. Set limits without your child resenting you for days afterward. And build trust between you and your child so that you avoid misery in the teen years. The doors are open now at mindfulparentingcourse.com. Unlike other programs in Mindful Parenting, we offer one-on-one coaching to every member and weekly drop-in coaching sessions. Don't wait anymore. You and your kids are worth leveling up. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 98, talking to Cassandra Vietan about the tapping into the science of your consciousness. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you are thriving, when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clarkfield's Mindfulness Mama Mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate self-awareness in their daily lives and to take family and life to a new level of peace and cooperation. I've been practicing yoga and mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course, and I'm the mom of two girls ages 7 and 10. Thank you so much for being here today. If you are new to the Mindful Mama podcast, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Please make sure you go back and listen to some of the awesome interviews from the past. And if you are a regular listener, welcome, welcome, welcome to you. I'm so glad you are here. This episode is a really interesting episode of the podcast. I talked to Cassandra Vietan, and she is the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And their work rests on the notion that the limitations in human consciousness and our understanding of it underlie the most pressing problems that we face as a global society. So you're going to learn, you're probably saying, huh, like you might have a little question mark. What is noetics? We're going to talk right about that as we dive in. And she's also the author of Mindful Motherhood and Living Deeply. So I can't wait for you to hear this episode, we talk about meditation and how it can boost mother-infant bonding. We talk about how there is an interconnected layer of consciousness and that our minds have a powerful effect on our health and relationships. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation for you to listen to. And thank you so much for the reviews that have been coming in we're aiming for a hundred reviews by the hundredth episode so that's coming in and if you would like to leave your personal feedback i would love to have that as well you can go over to mindfulmamapodcast.com to leave that and i just want to let you know that it's the end of the year 2017 and i my coaching practice is full but if you would like to apply for a clarity call now we can lock in the 2017 prices and we'll just get started in early 2018 so if you are looking to make the change you're really ready to make this year the year it happens the year you shift 
maybe harmful habits, the way you stop just surviving and you move to thriving and you create those relationships that you've always wanted in your family, you, we can do that. Let's talk. So go ahead and go to mindfulmamamentor.com. Look under work with me and you'll see there's a place for you to apply for a clarity session. All right, I think that's it. Now on to this episode with Cassandra. Cassandra, thank you so much and welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so glad we can talk today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And so I imagine the question you get right away from everybody, and I've introduced you already as the, you know, the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And so everybody's got this big question mark over their heads. <laughs> and so why don't you tell us what, what are the noetic sciences? Yeah, great. Well, so the Institute of Noetic Sciences is a 44-year organization that is in an hour north of San Francisco in California, but we're a global organization. And we were founded by the Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth person to walk on the moon. And on his way back to the Earth from his moonwalk, he was lucky enough to have the window seat in the space capsule. And he was in this place where the capsule is rotating and he's viewing the earth and the stars and the sun and the moon over and over again. And he had this deep, profound, meaningful experience that he called an epiphany that was really like he sensed his interconnectedness with everything. He kind of felt like the molecules of his body were the very same as the molecules of the space capsule and the stars and the earth and the sun and the moon. And like there was this light shining through everything or sort of like an intelligence, what Bohm would have called an implicate order. And it was just that moment of feeling like a sense of belonging. It was accompanied by a feeling of bliss and happiness and love and kind of deep consciousness and awareness. And even though he was interested in these topics before he went to the moon, that was really his first deeply embodied experience of oneness, you know. And so when he came back to Earth, he was like, what was that? Has that happened to anybody before? So he did all this research on it. And the word that he found came from the Hindu tradition that was probably the best match was samadhi. And they were like, yeah, people have been writing about this for millions of years, you know, like lots of people have had this experience. And this is what a lot of mystics think is the true nature of reality, that we see ourselves as these individual separate beings. But there's this way that we're actually all big, one big whole. And he was super interested in it, too, because he realized that if you have that experience and you really integrate it, it becomes very hard for you to harm other people while benefiting yourself or not take action to help the world. It's just like an automatic natural arising that comes out of an experience like that. Like, oh, it's not just about me. It's about the welfare of everyone. And what can I do to advance humanity and the safety and thriving of the planet? And so he also understood that in society, in Western society, it was going to be pretty hard to have samadhi be like the word. So he went to the Latin and the Greek and was trying to figure out, is there a more kind of Western model intellectual word? And the word noetic was the Greek word for inner knowing. So the Greeks had several different forms of knowledge and one was outer knowledge and one was inner knowledge. So noetic or noesis was the word for inner knowledge. And he thought, okay, well, that's what I'm talking about is something that you know to be true that you may not be able to measure or observe in the traditional sense, but you know it all the same. But then again, he also was like, and I don't want to start a new religion. I want to bring science or measurable knowing to that experience. So noetic sciences is actually the science of inner knowing. Wow. Wow. That's an amazing story. That What a founding story you have. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Right. Like I was saying to you, like this is such a deep area for me personally, because, you know, that whole, I mean, I see it as a, a truth of interconnection. And, and then I think it, it's interesting because, and I'll ask you a little bit more about this, but that I see this knowledge coming to me from my teacher from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen Vietnamese Buddhist teacher, talks about the truth of interconnection, how we all inter are. But then for me, it's always been very much like something I've 
realized as well from science. Like, yes, this makes sense to me in this spiritual tradition because it makes sense to me in science, like where there's no real edge to my body, like where there's no like place where my line where my skin ends and the air begins. And there's really like a lot of interconnection, literally, quite literally between my cells, between my breathing and the world. It's hard to, when you get down to these sort of smaller levels, it's really hard to see where one thing begins and one thing ends at a cellular level. And then if you go out in that sort of big picture, you know, that big perspective, you can also see that same thing, I guess, as he did coming back from the moon. There's just so much here. I don't even know. I just want to know a little bit more, I guess, about how did you get drawn into this? I'm curious about your own personal story about coming in to become the president of this Institute of Noetics. Yeah, well, basically, I grew up in a sort of traditional, well, I shouldn't say traditional, I should say sort of a classic Southern California suburban family. My dad was a university professor. My mom was a high school counselor. And then, you know, I lived, if you've ever seen the movie, like E.T., it was kind of like that kind of childhood, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah, it was very much like that. And we were not religious. We were very much kind of a NPR family, a PBS family, like I guess they would have called it secular humanists, Mm -hmm. very progressive, very dedicated to peace and fairness and equality and all of those things, but certainly not religious in any way. And probably a little bit like, at least on my dad's side as a scientist, like we don't need imaginary friends to get through life sort of feeling. (laughs) So so I grew up that way. And then as a teenager, I really ran into a lot of personal anxiety and depression and insecurity. And I was really sort of like struggling a lot. And I had some experiences that were like, very opening to the idea that there's more happening in reality than we can see with our eyes. There's, I had a couple of those experiences on a small scale of like Edgar had of oneness or synchronicity or very, very fascinated with science fiction and human potential and extraordinary capacities. And there were a few books and a few movies that really turned me on. And I was like, I really want to follow that. And then I took a class in Buddhism as a freshman in college, and I was like, oh my gosh, that is that makes more sense than anything I've ever heard. <laughs> like, you know, it was just one of those moments of like, that is so right. Like, that's so true. And so I started to pursue meditation. I ended up getting my PhD in psychology at a school in San Francisco that is a combination of Western psychology and Eastern philosophy. So we were taking classes in Freud and Jung and behaviorism and cognitive therapy and all of this stuff at the same time is taking a lot of Dhammapada, Eastern philosophical approaches to psychology. And when I finished, I was almost ready to become a therapist. And then I was like, wait a minute, I don't want to just help one person at a time. I really want to make discoveries that help thousands or millions of people. And so from my dad, I was like, you know, I think that's the scientific track. Like if we can make discoveries using science that are generalizable and are truths that aren't just subjective and limited to one person or a group of people, but are really generalizable across populations, that's what's going to move society forward. So then I decided to get more science training at UC San Francisco. And I worked there for a long time. And then in the end, I was just like, okay, can't I have both? Can I have both the spirituality (laughs) and subjectivity and the science? So I literally like went to Yahoo and put in science and spirituality and the Institute of Noetic Sciences popped up and it was like five minutes from my house. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I drove over there. I was like, "Um, I think I'm supposed to work here, you know, and um, it worked out. And so I started off as a researcher and then I started taking a bigger role here. And then about four and a half years ago, I became president and CEO. And now I'm the president of the organization. We have a new CEO. And it's just been an incredible journey. Really, really lucky, really a lot of gratitude about where I've been able to do my work. Wow. I mean, that was absolutely calling to you. Oh my God, Cassandra, I have such a similar experience. I've had like the East Coast version of your, I mean, at least in the childhood part, like, I love it. Yeah. I love it. 
agnostic parents and feeling like, you know, just feeling like wanting that deeper sort of spiritual or wondering and very curious about that. And that was a big slant I took with my artwork for a long time was exploring, exploring that and kind of took that other path. So that's really amazing. So what is some of the, and I want to get to also, you, you know, you've written several books, you've written Mindful Motherhood, you've written Living Deeply. There's so much I just want to talk to you about. I could probably sit here for three hours, but um, what I'm curious about in the Institute of Noetic Sciences, how do you explore some of these ideas of human consciousness and interconnection, et cetera, through the realm of science? Yeah, well, we have seven scientists and five international fellows. So we're one of the largest teams in the world that are studying what we call frontier topics in consciousness. So these are topics that go beyond just thought and emotion and experience to things that are, well, I guess one way to say it is our guiding hypothesis is that there is this interconnected layer of reality and human consciousness and that when people tap into it or they have experiences of it, they can access information and energy that is not limited by space and time, you know, that's really beyond our individual selves and may hold healing energy, may hold innovative energy, I mean, information, creativity, lots of inventors and scientists and people who have started movements have said explicitly that they tapped into something like this and that they kind of got a direct download from the universe of what needed to happen next and then they pursued that. So we really believe that people who tap into this layer can then take action for healing and transformation and innovation for society. And so the ways that we investigate that are through traditional scientific methods. We have neuroscientists, geneticists, psychophysiologists, clinical researchers, and we are looking specifically at these experiences that are anecdotal and subjective of things like synchronicity or knowing that somebody's in trouble somehow without knowing how you know it and then finding out that it's true or knowing who's going to call on the phone even though you haven't talked to them for four months or having transformative experiences, experiences of energy healing, you know, all of these experiences are feeling like that you've contacted deceased people, you know, all of these things that seem really, really wild. And people will say like, those are non-scientific. You cannot study those. It's like, no, you actually can study those the same way you study everything else that's invisible (laughs) because we've studied for a long time things that were not visible to us at the time, like cells and electrons and atoms through inference and through rigorous scientific studies. And then over time, our instrumentation caught up with us to be able to actually measure it. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, we look at hunches and gut feelings. And then we also look at practices like meditation and yoga and mind-body practices that people can use where they're directing their consciousness in ways that are still relatively new to Western society and modern medicine. And as you said earlier in the call, we know now, for example, that the way that people think and how they direct their attention can change their hormonal systems, their immune systems, the structure and function of their brain, their resting EG states, a whole, their heart rate, you know, a whole host of physiological things can happen from simply how somebody directs their minds or even through illusions that you show to them you know if you show somebody a photograph of a rattlesnake about to strike just by looking at that photograph their flight system will spike and Mm -hmm. so if we can harness the power of the mind in that personal healing that's a way that we apply it and we also apply it in education and business and leadership and so it's really two prongs. One is the scientific investigation of the power of the mind, and the second is the application in everyday life. Wow, wow. So do you have any, um, and this is so fascinating because these are, you know, there are traditions and stories and claims that are made through ancient practices and things like that. And there's lots of, I'm sure there's lots of things that are complete BS out there. And there are, I'm sure right. there are lots of things that are, really fascinating and really spark that grain of truth, I suppose you could say. And it must be 
challenging to kind of discern between the two. And I'm wondering if you have any examples or stories of things that are one might consider like pretty wild that you have been studying. Sure. I mean, it's kind of on a spectrum. So Mm -hmm. on one side of the spectrum is things that in the 60s and 70s were super far out, like the health benefits of yoga or the idea that meditation could reduce your stress at a physiological level or change your brain. And now we kind of know those things are true. So those are kind of basics. For example, the book I wrote on mindful motherhood was really just applying a meditation technique during pregnancy to see if we could reduce stress, improve mood, improve mother-infant bonding. And not surprisingly, it did do those things. And so those are kind of, for some people, they're still a little far out, um, but they're generally true. And now it's time for us to start implementing those throughout the medical system, not as alternative and complementary medicines, but just as basic medicine. On the whole other end of the spectrum are much more interesting claims, like if you've ever had a hunch, a, a precognitive dream, or something that you knew was about to happen, or even just a feeling of foreboding when you were ready to do something that made you feel like I shouldn't do mm-hmm. this thing. Mm-hmm. We investigate those moments by, for example, sitting someone in a chair, hooking them up to a whole lot of psychophysiological equipment. We show them pictures on the screen, like I was mentioning earlier about the rattlesnake. So they're randomly chosen photos that we know cause a reaction after people see them. So if you show somebody the barrel of a pistol pointed at them, they'll have an internal physiological response or a rattlesnake about to strike or something that's uh, scary. If you show them a picture of a lamp or a cool river, they have sort of a calming or neutral response. And if you show them a pile of puppies or an erotic picture, they have like a different response. (laughs) And so you can look at the responses in their bodies. And what's super interesting is we go down to the millisecond and what we see is that anywhere from 300 milliseconds to a second before the disturbing pictures are presented, the body is already starting to react to that disturbing picture, even though it hasn't seen it yet. And the computer hasn't even chosen it yet. So that's just like, what is going on? (laughs) Wow. So the, the idea there is maybe time or events are more like pebbles. They're not just causing reactions. They're also having ripples that go a little bit into the past. And you can imagine why that might have been evolved, which is that over millennia, if you knew even a millisecond before a boulder was going to fall on you that it was coming, you would step out of the way. And you can think those kinds of people probably got selected over time Mm. that had just a little bit more of a hunch of what was coming next. So we can't make it work every single time with every single person. But in general, on average, we see these effects that are statistically significant. So another one is... Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's kind that's, of amazing. That's, yeah, I mean, that's really amazing. I mean, that's your, your gut feeling right there. I mean, I, I right. talked to my daughters about that, you know, if you have a bad feeling and et cetera kind of thing, like, I want you to really listen to that, but then to see that it's there in the science. And, and, and you know, it kind of makes me think of like when I'm relativity, right? Like time and space are relative and maybe, you know, I don't know. It's wild. It's great stuff. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. 
I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. We are supported by Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math Mysteries About True Histories. It's a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. I highly recommend this podcast. It's really wonderful, especially if you have kids like around like six plus, but it can totally be enjoyed by the whole family. So I listened to the episode, The Pirate Queen, and you're just dropped right in the middle of the action. People are fighting. There's sword fight. And then these kids, they've gone on a time travel mission and they have to solve problems in the midst of it. And it really just like exemplifies everything we support here at Mindful Parenting. You know, kids who are adventurous, doing things on the world, they're capable. And then they do things like they have to do math, they have to think critically, they have to code break and pattern solving and all this great stuff. Beyond just the Pirate Queen episode, which I highly recommend, episodes transport listeners to moments in history, too, like Pythagoras, Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. So jump in with your family. Follow the adventures of Max and Molly on an adventure through time with puzzles and hidden equations and laughs, and it really does make learning really fun and really cool. Perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's Mysteries About True Histories. Well, the truth is we just don't know everything there is to know about the nature of reality. And so when we get skepticism, where people just kind of at a knee-jerk level are like, that's just all crap. Hmm. We're like, do you really think we know everything there is to know right now about human potential Mm. and the nature of reality? Mm. There's no way that we know everything. So that kind of, I have a colleague named Rupert Sheldrake, who you might've read some of his work and people ask him sometimes, you know, like, how could you possibly waste your time and taxpayers money on such ridiculous things? And, they say, how do you respond to that? And he's this British gentleman who is a Cambridge fellow. And he says, I think they demonstrate a remarkable lack of curiosity, you know, which I agree (laughs) with. (laughs) That's great. That's great. I interrupted you though. You were going to give another example. Oh no. Yeah. Another experiment, for example, is separating two people into two different chambers. Uh, They can be 200 feet from each other or 200 miles from each other. And one of them is called the receiver, and they're hooked up to a lot of psychophysiological equipment, again, like heart rate, skin conductance, heart rate variability, you can brain waves, all kinds of stuff, and then respiration. And then the other person is shown a video feed of the person. So the receiver is just resting quietly. You might say to them, you know, just rest quietly, but don't fall asleep. Or you might say to them, concentrate on being receptive to any attention that might be paid to you from a distance. And then the sender is asked to send strong intention toward the person when they see their face on the screen. And when they don't see their face on the screen to purposely withdraw their attention and think about something completely different like baseball or cheeseburgers, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so they pay strong attention, they distract themselves, they pay strong attention, they distract themselves. And what they find is during those attention periods, the physiology of the receiving person changes, even though they have no way of knowing which periods of time the attention is being paid to them. So it's another clue that these experiences people have of distant communication between minds may not be imaginary. There might be some physical reality to what's happening there. Wow. Wow. Holy moly. That's really cool stuff. I mean, that's pretty amazing. What a fun place to work you That's really amazing. Wow. This is really fascinating. I mean, that's the amazing for you to be in there, like sort of on this sort of cutting edge of exploring these parts of the universe that we don't understand yet. I mean, that's talk about. It is. It's a pretty cool job. I think that a couple of other things that are 
very recent are one is that we have a virtual reality lab now that is the director of our VR lab is Lauren Carpenter, who is the he's a two time Academy Award winner who was the co-founder of Pixar Animation Studios. And he retired and started working with us. And so we're creating virtual reality experiences. The first one that we're going to create is something to replicate Edgar's experience in space. So we have the people who created the game or the experience called Apollo 11, which is a, an award-winning VR experience where you can experience being landing on the moon for the first time. Mm. And they're kind of working with us to update it to Apollo 14 and then we have a lot of recordings of Edgar's voice describing his experience. So basically, we're trying to give people a little taste of the experience that Edgar had in space. But we're also going to use it to enhance the mind-body healing effect. So if you're leading somebody through a meditation and you say, pay attention to your breathing, breathe in and breathe out, there's some fun VR techniques now where people can actually see their breath moving in and out in a little sparkling cloud so that people mm. who have a really hard time focusing on their breath might have a little bit of training wheels to help them. Or if you're trying to help somebody with pain relief or something, you can mm. say, you know, imagine a cool waterfall moving through your lower back where you're experiencing the pain. In VR, you can actually look down and see a cool waterfall mm. moving through your back, you know? So yeah. it's really exciting. Wow, that's amazing. And I want to go back to sort of what you were saying about, it sounds kind of funny to me now, but to imagine that in the 70s, people thought that meditation was, did nothing to the body because now, I mean, it's like, it's kind of what my whole, all the work that I do is kind of based on is looking at that stress response and helping us reduce stress and become less reactive and things like that in parenthood specifically. But it sounds like you studied that in the Noetic Institute. Specifically, did you and what have you learned about meditation and the science of meditation in the Noetic? Yeah, well, I did it when I first started to do work in the scientific field, as I was mentioning to you after my psychotherapy training. I became a clinical researcher and I worked for about 12 years on project on the genetics of alcoholism. So, my mm -hmm. job was to recruit families and talk, uh, interview them about their patterns of drinking and draw their blood. And then the project was trying to find genes. So it was a very mainstream research project, which was great. And then I got a grant to, cause I was really into meditation. I got a grant to study how mindfulness might help people who were trying to quit drinking, avoid relapse. Mm -hmm. And it was really about teaching them to improve their capacity to regulate difficult emotions and keep them very aware and conscious so that they didn't fall into old habit patterns that were leading to a relapse without them knowing it. So we did that study for a number of years and created an acceptance-based relapse prevention tool. Then I got another grant to look at mindfulness-based approaches to helping people quit smoking, which was kind of the same idea. How do you help people sort of make it through the cravings using mindfulness? And that was another nice study. And then I got pregnant and I was using my mindfulness practice to really help me through my own pregnancy and all of the changes in my body and giving birth and then having the baby and going through that first year of motherhood. And I was like, oh my gosh, this helped me so much that I want to do a study on it. So I got funded to do a study on mindfulness during pregnancy and early motherhood with women. So I created a program and uh, my colleagues and I, and we delivered it to several groups of pregnant women and showed in a small randomized trial that it reduced stress and improved mood and enhanced the bonding with the baby. And so that was recently then, that was picked up by a big study at UCSF called the MAMA study, which was a five-year study looking at the mindfulness intervention to help people who were pregnant, who were very high risk, high stress, urban, diverse, low income sample. And we're just finishing that study. In fact, I'm resubmitting the paper today. So mm. um, it's taken a long time. But then I wrote the book Mindful Motherhood, which was really just a basic meditation program for pregnant women and new moms and also an online course that you can find at noetic.org. And then a course for facilitators who wanted to bring mindful motherhood to their client populations. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. So in the mama study and in your own study of applying meditation to motherhood, I'm curious about what kind of meditation did you ask the mothers to do? It's kind of a basic Vipassana meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, In the original study, the mindful motherhood study, it was really about approaching your moment to moment experience with openness, curiosity, and compassion and using that as a practice to allow you to have distressing emotions pass through with awareness, but without getting super Velcroed to them, you know, <laughs> um, without having them push you into a spiral of unnecessary distress on top of whatever the original distress was. And then also to really savor beautiful moments as an antidote to some of the other things. So we recruited women in particular who were at high risk for depression, having had a recent episode of, or having a, had a historical episode of depression, knowing that they are going to be a little bit more likely to fall into rumination and negative thinking patterns. And so it was really to try to help people deal with the physical changes, the identity changes, and the labor and childbirth itself, and those negative thinking patterns that can really bring someone down and potentially increase risk for postpartum depression. So it's a very basic sort of mindfulness 101. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even less intensive than, let's say, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is also an eight-week course. We did draw from some of the elements of mindfulness-based stress reduction, and then we were inspired by Nancy Bardicke's program, which is mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting preparation. But this was an even more introductory level for like your general person who's showing up at the hospital, they learn they're pregnant. They don't really have any interest in meditation or a spiritual path, but this is kind of a really super basic intervention that they can take for eight weeks and feel like they've accessed some benefit from the practice without having to kind of do a day-long retreat or, you know, do Mm -hmm. three-hour sessions. It's one and a half hours instead of three hours. And so it's kind of like a very mindfulness 101. Mm -hmm. And how, what were some of the results that women experienced from that? Well, the main results from those studies were, number one, reduction in stress, increase in stress resilience, increase in psychological flexibility, which is kind of a way of saying acceptance. In other words, the ability to be resilient in the face of changing thoughts and emotions and distresses, increases in positive mood, and changing their emotion regulation techniques from more suppression-oriented techniques to reappraisal, meaning that they're not stuffing things or pushing them down. They're actually sort of dealing with them as they come. And then kind of some improvements in their relationship with the babies. Like in the mama study, the recent UCSF study, we showed that the women who received the mindfulness training, their babies had less doctor visits in the first year and we're continuing to follow them up, um, the babies now into the next parts of their lives to see how the training might've influenced their lives. Wow, that's great. That's amazing. And so are the women, do you know if the women are keeping up with their practices and things like that? Have you been I don't know. We haven't had we haven't been following up with the women as closely as the babies. So mm-hmm. that'll be interesting. I think the people who are doing the baby study are asking the women some questions. And I'm not sure, to be honest. Yeah, I, I would say it's that's probably the really tricky part is to keep up with it. But um, mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. for me if we can give people tools, I think it really helps them. Like we did in the end create very basic app for women to use for keeping up with the meditations. And I've also now uploaded some of the mindful motherhood meditations to insight timer, which is a free Mm -hmm. meditation Mm -hmm. app that people can use. And that's really, really easy way to keep up with the practice. Cool. Yeah. That's my uh, insight. The insight timer is an app I recommend to, my mindful mamas here in this audience too. That's so cool. So, wow, this is great. I love, I love the work that you're doing. I mean, so taking this sort of layer of coming from the sort of larger layer of consciousness itself and under trying to seeing the science and trying to understand that sort of interconnected layer of consciousness and understanding the experience of sort of samadhi and the experience of interconnection to 
applying it very realistically to people's lives. This is amazing work that is really, I'm sure, rippling outward in an amazing way. I want to know a little bit more about what you're talking about, the role of consciousness in healing. And, and I'm specifically wondering about, A, you know, we know that mindfulness practices and can reduce experiences of pain and help us in things like that. But I'm I'm wondering if you've studied other ways that consciousness can help in healing in any other ways. Well, there's a couple ways of looking at that. I mean, one is just the understanding that there really has been very, in relative terms, there's been very, very little research on mind-body approaches. So even though there are hundreds of studies on meditation and maybe fewer studies on yoga and things like that, there's hardly any studies on just what would happen if you spent time every day directing your attention toward your own health and well-being or, you know, toward visualizing the reduction of tumors or, I mean, in any field, there's really been... I remember one of my colleagues saying the amount of money that's been spent on alternative and complementary medicine as a whole is like less than one F-16 fighter plane or less than Mm -hmm. one year of Eli Lilly's budget for studying drugs. Just way. So we really haven't even begun to scratch the surface of it. But the studies that we have done indicate that, let's put it in the negative perspective, people and animals that are put into stressful situations and fear-inducing situations and threat situations, it's very clear that it has damaging effects on almost every system of their body, lowering the immune system, disrupting all kinds of homeostasis. And so the interesting thing is we haven't done as much research on the opposite, which is what do positive or coherent experiences do to people's bodies? So I think that's a wide open field for research. Probably the most accepted aspect of mind-body medicine that everybody understands is the placebo effect, which has been framed as kind of like people just believe that they're getting better when they're not really. Well, there's also an aspect of the placebo effect where people do, in fact, get better because they believe that they're taking an active medication or that they're part of an active intervention. And that level of belief influencing the body is very, very interesting. It's so interesting that we literally have to control for it in every study that we do. So that's just an area that we've got to spend more attention on is, you know, I had a friend who had a liver illness and she went to her doctor and this is like 2013 in San Francisco. And he gave her a medication and said, try this, see how it goes. And she said, well, is there anything else I can do to work with this illness. And he said, no, not really. And that's just amazing to me. That's where we are in medicine Mm -hmm. right now is drugs and surgery, health behaviors to a certain extent, although there's very little research on how to actually get people to do the health behaviors that doctors want them to do other than doctors just saying you should do this, which totally doesn't work. And, but we're not even anywhere near doctors saying, you know, why don't you spend about 20 minutes a day paying attention to your breathing and your body sensations and setting a strong intention for the healing of your body? Or why don't you do a walking, why don't you spend 20 minutes in nature every day? Just a hundred different things that he could have said. Now, granted, those might not be evidence-based yet, but I think that if we were to, I think that consciousness is kind of like an undertapped resource probably to the level of like electricity before it was discovered you know mm-hmm. electricity always existed it was always here from the beginning of time and it wasn't until like 400 years ago that people were like wait a minute there seems to be like some sparks in the air sometimes like static or <laughs> lightning and then people were like what is that and it was 400 years later they created a light bulb it's like that's the kind of untapped potential I think we have in our own minds. And that's not even beginning to get to what happens when we direct our intention toward another person, not just ourselves. So there's a lot of research on energy healing modalities and non-touch therapies. And there's some promising results. There's some results that aren't as promising. 
but that again is another very kind of untapped field of potential. And I recommend that people go to the noetic.org website. There's energy medicine bibliography that's about 20 different energy medicine techniques that we've done research reviews on to evaluate the state of the evidence, things like Reiki and things like that. And then there's also something called the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, which we're a part of that is chi.is or chi.is on the internet. And they have a very nice selection of studies and ways that you can investigate the actual research that exists on the biofield. In other words, is there an energy body that is sort of connected to our physical body that, that when people conduct interventions actually are reflected in healing in the physical body. Wow. Wow. I mean, it's amazing kind of you think about it. I mean, exactly what you're saying that we are so, we're kind of in the dark about this uh, with the metaphor of electricity. I mean, really see that we are in the dark in so many ways. It's amazing that we're not tapping into it. It's almost like it kind of makes me think of like the science, you know, at least the medicine and the healing, like we're almost like still this just behaviorist kind of level, like the way we were right. with parenting, like we're just like, there are behaviors that you can stop in this kind of very mechanical way. Right. Like we're in this like kind of mechanical realm rather than kind of utilizing all our resources. It sounds like. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. We're definitely locked into a very mechanical, materialist kind of industrialist paradigm still where we see a lot of the body's functions as a mechanical processes and the mm -hmm. whole universe, you know, there's this whole thing about the universe just being a giant clock. And as soon as we take apart all the pieces, we're going to understand all of it. And even with something like the brain and people who are leading scientists at Max Planck and places like that are saying the brain is actually not a thing. It's a flow of information and energy that is constantly changing. The neuronal connections are constantly pruning themselves and they're constantly having neurogenesis of new neurons and new connections. So we have to move away from this idea that things are actually static things and understand that pretty much everything is a dynamic system that is constantly changing in interaction with the environment. And part of the environment is external and part of that environment is internal, what you think, what you believe, what you intend, what you pay attention to, what you imagine. Those are all actually real things that have a real effect on your being and probably on other beings and possibly even on physical reality. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. Wow. Wow. 
I love this. I love that there's at least one place, one place in the world where you're studying this scientifically, you know, because there's this whole world of people talking about it. and it would be, it's important to know it for sure, to kind of understand these things for sure and to look at things scientifically because, you know, we all have our stories, right? We all have our stories of we had this feeling or like, I, I'm kind of a skeptic, right? I'm kind of, a, right. you know, a, a little bit of a skeptic in some ways and a little bit not. And I did a yoga teacher training And when I was at this yoga teacher training, it was this month long teacher training. It did, you know, over 20 years ago. And at that teacher training, there was a Reiki master there. And she, and I was very skeptical about Reiki and I still don't really know anything about it, you know, but I I was very skeptical of it. She attuned all of us is what she said. And then, so she did that for me. And then she said, oh, in a certain within, there's going to be this window of like kind of cleansing and detox and that, you know, you should just be very careful during this window because your body's going to be detoxing. You might break out and you might, might, right. be, might be especially sensitive to things. So I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, and, right. <laughs> and then I went on with my life. And at that point I was like 27 years old and I went to visit a friend in Rhode Island and I stayed with him and he was dating a woman who was her 21st birthday. So we went out and we celebrated her 21st birthday. And of course that involves like lots of drinking and you know, it was, uh-huh. we had a good time. It was fine, whatever. But then I, I had this experience of like a really intense reaction, like way, way outside, like the normal response to, you know, like a hangover or something like that. Like I hadn't experienced anything like this. It was like, I was it to be really gross. Like I was puking like for hours. I had to call my mother. I'm 27 years old. I had to call my mother to pick me up, (laughs) you know, and I couldn't believe how it had this intense effect on me. And I realized like I was within the sort of very end of this window. And she said to be careful alcohol and things like that. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, so we all have stories. Yeah. And we all have these experiences of like my husband and I, you know, we will think the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. We'll just be like, right. I'll say something. And he's like, I was just about to say that, you know, and we just constantly. And um, I yeah. love that. Yeah. And it can be like so random. I mean, I remember when my daughter was young up until about age three and even sometimes now, but I mean, things like we would be driving down the street and she would be like, I'd be thinking about taking her to the zoo and she'd be like, mom, what's a giraffe? It's just like, what (laughs) is happening right now? So, I mean, I will give a caveat and say there is definitely a lot of crap out there. I mean, there's no doubt that there's a lot of superstitious snake oil taking advantage of people. You know, it's really unfortunate. And so when we run up against massive skepticism, which we do frequently, I try to be very compassionate toward the people who are the skeptics because they're really trying to keep society from devolving into back into the dark ages, like into some ridiculous superstitious way of being. So that's not at all what we're about. I mean, we're definitely about doing rigorous science on these ideas. We're definitely also against the idea that you can't do science on these, which is completely untrue. Mm -hmm. Um, because you can investigate anything really using the scientific method as long as you use all of the methods that, you know, help you control for bias and all that stuff. And just because you have an experience definitely does not mean it's true. I mean, Mm -hmm. we are very faulty logic, highly susceptible to illusion and gullibility creatures So you want to be open. There was one phrase that somebody used one time that said, be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brain falls out. I mean, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice. That's really good advice. So just to wrap up, I mean, I just love the possibilities you have sort of opened up, which are really kind of exciting and that it's based in science. And, but just to wrap up, I was thinking about sort of your own life and maybe the lives of the listener. How have you taken some of this learning and some of this knowledge that you've acquired over the years and applied this in your own life? And what might you want the listener to take away and bring into their own lives? Yeah, I think the main thing is a really firm understanding that what I think and where I choose to place my attention and what I intend, what I imagine, what I believe, how I choose to view the world, 
is all very, very important. It requires as much attention to maintaining the inner world as it does to maintaining your outer world. In fact, by maintaining your inner world and developing your inner world, your outer world will benefit and change no matter what, whether it's your parenting or your relationship or your workplace or your purpose in life or your success level, your health and well-being. And so most people, when you ask them in the United States in your K through 12 education, how many courses did you take on how to manage or moderate your intention and attention and imagination, belief, thinking patterns? And people will, of course, say none. And I'll say, how many of you had even one hour of education in your entire schooling on how to attend to your inner world? Zero, really almost zero, unless you went to a Waldorf school or a Montessori school. So that is crazy. <laughs> that is just the idea that we're so much val we're so focused on the outer physical world with so little focus on the inner world and how we can use those inner aspects of ourselves is crazy. So in my own life, that's a really I prioritize my meditation time or for whoever's listening, whatever your mind body practice time is very important to do in the morning, in the evening, throughout the day. I find that indispensable completely. And there are also times that I still get completely lost in my life. You know, there's times that I'm really fall off the wagon of being aware and conscious. And in those moments, it's not about being self harsh. It's about being compassionate and saying everybody falls off in their awareness and their consciousness multiple times a day. And it's how you recover and how you repair those moments. That's the most important thing. And that's true in your relationships and your parenting and your workplace where you over time become aware sooner and sooner. Oh, I was just unconscious there. And you go back to the person and say, Hey, I realized that I just overreacted there and I think this is why and I'm sorry about that here. Is there anything I can do to repair that with us? And that's true with even three-year-old children. Hey, kiddo, I, I kind of blew it there. You know, mommy got angry and I think it was because I got scared. Sorry, I yelled. I mean, that's huge. Mm -hmm. It's not about never yelling. It's about being able to repair those moments through your awareness practices. And you really can't do those things until you really have a good awareness practice rolling. And it's a practice, not an event. So it's something that you have to keep doing all the time. And it opens up a brand new world where you're not anymore like the pinball in your life that's getting knocked around from event and person and situation to situation, but you're actually creator of your life you're a participant you're the person who's i like to say sometimes like you're the cartographer of your map you're creating what happens next along with the rest of the universe so that's that's a whole different way of living i love that i love that cassandra thank you so so much and so people can find you at the institute of noetic sciences and we will link to that in the show notes is there any other place that you would like to direct people to if they have any questions uh, for you yeah very easy just go to noetic.org n-o-e-t-i-c.org and you can become a member of ions and get all of our news and email updates and things you can go to mindfulmotherhood.org to learn about the book and the online course if you're parenting, if you're a mom. And yeah, those are great places to start. We also have a Institute of Noetic Sciences Facebook page that you can follow. Great. Thank you so much. I really Thank appreciate you. it, Cassandra. Thank you so much for listening. Wasn't that a fascinating conversation? Oh my gosh, it really kind of blew my mind. I love learning about how meditation boosts mother-infant bonding. I love talking about this idea of the interconnected layer of consciousness. Yes, yes, so cool. And how that powerful effect our minds have on our health and consciousness. Wow, it's so, so cool. So if you have any questions, feel free to email me, hunter at mindfulmamamentor.com. Please do, of course, subscribe and leave a rating. We're looking for those 100 ratings by the 100th episode. Please help me out with that. 
And if you are looking for coaching, you're looking to get the support, the sounding board, you want to feel really seen and heard, and you want to have the accountability you might need to finally change those habits and create those new ones and to understand yourself beautifully and deeply and to create incredible relationships with your kids where it's more cooperative and easier. Yes, yes, yes. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com and look under work with me. If you apply for a clarity session now, we will lock in 2017 prices, even though my roster is full and we will start early in 2018. So thank you so much for listening. If you are listening to this in real time, happy new year. So exciting. I love new beginnings. Yay. It's so exciting. May this be the best year for you ever. Namaste. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.